During World War II, there was a professor from Glasgow by the name of Alistair MacDonald who was caused to bail out of the back of a plane by an emergency, a misfire, and a fire inside the plane. And he and the chaplain, also a Scotsman, jumped out, parachuted out, made it safely to the ground, but were immediately captured by Germans as they were behind enemy lines and were placed in a prison camp. And there in the prison camp, a weird thing happened. They had it divided into an American and British side, and they, I guess they looked at these Scotsmen and were like, I don't know, put one on one side and one on the other. So one of them was in the American barracks, one of them was in the, the, the uh, British barracks, and they had very little opportunity to interact with one another. There was a high wire fence between them, and they would try maybe every other day to pass near each other and speak to each other before they were uh, chastised by the guards and made to back up from the fence. And it was important for them to do that because on the American side, they had cobbled together a radio with which they could learn a little information about the outside world and what was going on, which is something in a prisoner camp during a war which is almost as important as food, bringing you sustenance, bringing you the hope that you may soon be set free. And so they would come together, and in the Gaelic language, which no German anywhere spoke, they would trade a few uh, you know, words of encouragement, and then would come some headlines, some updates, which then would be brought back to the British side. And one day, the news came over that little radio that the German high command had surrendered, and the war, at least that part of the war, was over. And McDonald took this news to his friend, who thought about it and processed it for a moment, and said thank you, and turned and walked away. And about a minute later, he heard a huge eruption of shouting and cheering and celebrating from the British barracks. And then life in the camp was transformed. Men began walking around singing where they had been downcast and, and broken. They began waving at the guards, laughing at the dogs. And when the German guards finally heard this same news three nights later, they fled into the dark, leaving the gate wide open. And in the morning, those British and American soldiers walked out as free men. Yet they had truly been freed three days earlier by the news that the war was over. They had been holding on to hope, and every little bit of news about the pushing back of Hitler's troops, every little inch that was gained fed their hope. But in that moment, their hope turned to joy. Of course, the first Sunday of Advent we call the, the Sunday of hope. This week is the Sunday of joy. In between is peace, which comes from God as well. And I think in that little story about those two Scottish prisoners of war, we see perhaps a metaphor for the kingdom of God. That yes, the kingdom is here, but the kingdom is not yet consummated. And the kingdom has not yet covered the entirety of the earth. At least news of this kingdom has not yet covered it. It's not fully achieved, and yet we know the outcome of the battle. And we too have been set free. Our hope is even now turning to joy. Now as we look at this passage from Isaiah 61, a very common passage to be read during Advent, to be read with the lighting of the candle and that sort of thing, we find from the very beginning that God is at work to turn our hope into joy, to feed our hope so that we do not despair, then to bring us peace 
and to bring us reason to celebrate, to rejoice. And not just Jesus, not just God the Father, not just the Spirit, but in verse 1, we see all three persons of the Trinity acting in concert for our salvation. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit is there. The Lord, that's God the Father. Where's, where's Jesus? Me. Not me, but me. Here in Isaiah 61, 1. And you say, hold on a minute. This is Isaiah, the prophet, talking. Why would we think this is Jesus? Well, first of all, it says he has anointed me. And yes, granted, lots of people in the Old Testament are anointed. Prophets are anointed when they're commissioned. Kings are anointed. Remember, David is anointed with oil. But the word anointed, the word Mashiach, anointed one, which we've kind of goyized into Messiah, which comes into the New Testament Greek as Christ, Christos, that word always finds its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the ultimate fulfillment. But more than that, Jesus himself tells us this is about him. When he was in his hometown synagogue after the commencement of his ministry, he stood up, he read a passage. It was from this very passage. And he sat down and said, this scripture has been fulfilled this day in your hearing. It's me. I'm the one. I am the anointed one who will do all this stuff. And when they heard that, instead of their hope, their messianic hope, turning to joy, their hope turned to rage. They were angered. They wanted to put him to death. How could anyone be angry considering these beautiful promises that were coming to fruition? Well, let's look at these promises for the remainder of our time today. I think they are needed, and I think that they will bring you hope, and I pray that that hope will mature into joy this Christmas season. The Lord has anointed me too. And then you see two, 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 all these things that God has anointed his Messiah to do. The first one is to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Jesus comes bringing the, the message of God and his glory to those who are least powerful. The, he, he speaks during his ministry about the poor in spirit, those who don't see themselves as high and lifted up, but those who humble themselves and approach him in a lowly posture. I've told you a gazillion times that that word tokos in the Greek, poor in spirit, tokos, comes from a root that means to be punched over like a beggar on the street. Those who approach God this way receive good news. News of salvation. Those who approach like the shepherds when Christ was born. And, and who, who's looking for him? Herod, the king. But God doesn't send the angels to Herod and say, oh, I know where you can find him so you can go worship. No, 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 no. He doesn't want to worship him anyway. He wants to kill him. No, no, he goes to the lowly. He goes to the poor and poor in spirit, the shepherds and tells them where to find the child so they can come and receive good news. In fact, the angels say, we have good news of great joy, which will be for all the peoples. Tim Keller has coined the term middle class in spirit. To me, that one kind of stings a little bit. The notion that we, we, most of us, don't walk around like Pharisees. Jesus chastised the Pharisees for having long, flowing tassels, and, and really big uh, tefillin, which were these boxes containing scriptures. It'd be like carrying a giant Bible and walked around expecting people to sort of, uh, you know, genuflect as they passed. Most of us aren't like that, but I think a lot of us struggle with being actually poor in spirit as well. I think a lot of us 
used to our standard of living and, and relative comfort, our middle class in spirit, where we think God kind of owes us some things and ought to deliver a certain standard of living and answer most of my prayers. And I'll worship him and everything, but that's not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means I am deeply in spiritual debt with no prospect of working my way out. In fact, I can't, not only can't I get out of debt, I can't stop digging my way deeper and deeper into this pit. And when I call out to him, I know that my only hope is that he will reach down and pull me out. And when he does, my hope becomes joy. So he's come to bring good news to the poor and poor in spirit. He's come to bind up the brokenhearted. This is one of my favorite terms in all the Bible. And its, it's background is that the standard practice in that day and in that place, when someone had a wound or an injury, was to soften it with oil, then to kind of squeeze out anything toxic in the wound. If there was a foreign object, you know, some metal from a battle, or, or if there was some pus or something, to squeeze all of that out and then wrap it rather tightly in cloth as, as a bandage, binding it up. We read about this in the New Testament in Luke 10 when Jesus is giving us the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember the priest and the Levite walk right by this guy because he's laying there possibly dead, very gross and bloody. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Well, this is what Jesus does for us binds up broken hearts. He takes our hearts and softens them. And we know this from, from reading that he takes a heart of stone and makes it into a heart of flesh. Our hearts were hard. In fact, when you're in the book of Exodus, you're reading about Pharaoh, and you read God's hardened his heart. I read that, and I think, how could his heart be any harder than it was to begin with? He already viewed all of these millions of people as a commodity. Men, women, children, ready just to say, well, it's more convenient for me if they're dead than if they're alive. Our hearts were hard apart from Christ. He softens them. He squeezes out all that is in them that doesn't belong, all that is toxic, the sin, the hatred, the lust, the avarice. The, the revenge, all of it that's in there, the self-centeredness, the laziness, the pride. And then he binds them up. He binds up broken hearts. And where we have found ourselves to be worthless, he shows us to be made in his image. Jesus came to comfort those who mourn. He says that next. If you're mourning today, Jesus came to bring you hope and joy. Jesus came to comfort you. If your heart is broken, Jesus came to gently, carefully wrap it in his love that you might be full of hope. Spurgeon said this, It seems that God finds glory in the help of his sad, sick, sorrowful creatures. He gets glory out of making them. He gets higher glory out of making them anew. Creation yields the moonlight glory. The new creation is as of the sun shining in the strength. O ye mourners, may God grant you peace now to give glory to God by cheerfully accepting those wondrous blessings of grace which Christ has come to bestow. And here in verse 3 then, he begins to describe this series, this list of reversals that this coming Messiah, anointed one, will bring, turning curse to blessing. 
See, the, the people had, had began to just embrace the curse. And, and with every passing year, it seemed less and less like something that needed to be or ever could be corrected, but rather just their, their lot in life, what they deserve, what they had coming. Well, God is now coming to rekindle the hope within them and ultimately to turn that hope to joy. So he tells them, after many years, decades, generations in exile, many of them having given up their spirit, weary and fatigue, that happy times are now coming. The spirit of heaviness, he tells them, will be replaced with the garment of praise. This reminds me an awful lot of Jesus' promise. You have a heavy yoke bearing down on your shoulders. I'll take it. I'll give you mine. It's light. It's easy. Jesus is going to take the yoke of their sin and give them a easy load to carry the law of love where they had covered their heads in ashes he says in keeping with the oriental practice they would literally put ashes on their heads throughout their time of mourning now god will replace those with a beautiful crown or as the king james says changing beauty for ashes the oil of gladness will come instead of mourning in all of this stuff, he proclaims liberty and the release of captives, the year of the Lord's favor, an era of blessing and grace. All of this points us to one thing. What's being promised here is a jubilee. Are you familiar with the jubilee? In the, in the Hebrew calendar that God created, the, the rhythm of liturgical worship that was interwoven with their lives and their life together, there were these cycles of seven years. They had weeks of years. And on the seventh, just like the seventh day was a Sabbath and you would not work, that seventh year, you would not work your fields. You would rest and let the fields rest and let the animals come and eat whatever was left. And God says through, through uh, the, the prophet, he says, if you're going to ask, how will we eat in that seventh year? I'm going to bless you in the sixth year all the more. Well, then you have seven of those sevens, seven weeks of years, makes 49 and then on the 50th year they called that the jubilee and that was the big celebration and that was for many people the resumption of life because they had lost all that they had and it was given back to them debts were forgiven what a wonderful feeling that is a debt forgiven i don't know if you've ever had that i did when, when uh, i graduated from seminary my parents gave me a card that said jubilee your debts are forgiven. I had owed them some money from uh, buying a car that they helped me buy, from, uh, let's see, going on our honeymoon. We borrowed some money from my parents, and, and it said, forgiven. Wow, what a blessing, what a weight lifted. Well, if you think about somebody whose whole life was wrapped up in debt because they had sold everything they owned, sold their ancestral land, sold their home, even sold themselves into service, it was not uncommon in that world. You would actually pierce your ear through the lobe with a thing that indicated I am now a bond servant and move into someone else's home and begin working off your debt. In most cases, you only would do that if you could never really work off your debt and you needed a, a roof over your head. And that would be also reversed in the year of Jubilee. Slaves were set free. After decades of inevitable accumulation of most land and wealth amongst a few people, which always happens... All the land was returned to the ancestral owners who had inherited it as they came into the Holy Land during the conquest. 
This is all good news for the poor very much. It's a jubilee. And the Hebrew root of jubilee comes from the word to flow. And it refers to maybe the airflow through the trumpets or the flow of the, the sound, this stream of sound, a rich, beautiful sound from trumpets that declared the arrival of the jubilee. And yet, when Christ announced it, it's, it wasn't with a trumpet. It wasn't with fanfare. It was just in a regular speaking voice, in a unremarkable, unimpressive little synagogue in Nazareth, the most inconsequential backwater town you can imagine. We also heard this morning about his mother being told that she would have a child and, and the, uh, the miraculous conception of a child within her womb in Nazareth, happening with very little fanfare, it seems. Jesus then born in a, and placed in a manger, in Bethlehem, another backwater town, although at least with some kingly and messianic associations. But even though it seems to come in a backwards way, this jubilee ultimately fulfills true freedom like none other. There can be, after this jubilee, for those who are forgiven their debt of sin and, and released from their captivity and bondage to their sin nature, there can be no more reacquiring debt or returning to slavery. Well, Israel seems to have only observed this jubilee practice a handful of times in reality. This one is eternal. And it comes with an eternal covenant. Look at verse 8. For the, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That's what's so amazing about Christmas, to think about the arrival of God the Son in the flesh and all that is immediately different, even though this little baby doesn't have the core strength to lift his head or turn over. Everything has changed. This babe in a manger will usher in a new covenant that David, who killed his tens of thousands in battle, could not secure. I've heard it put this way. The promise of God is guaranteed by the character of God. And before he had accomplished anything from a human point of view, the fact that he is God's anointed secured for us the beginning of a new era. That's why I think we say B.C. after the birth of Christ. That's how what era we're living in now. That's how we reckon time. In fact, the very name Isaiah, the prophet here, means Yahweh is salvation. He is salvation. That's who he is for us. His character will not, cannot change. And so we can count on him to always keep his promises, particularly when they are housed in an eternal covenant. In verse 10, we read, Therefore, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What an enormous claim. Those who were in exile, they were, they were, they thought forgotten by their God and cast aside. They were beginning to wonder if they'd ever return to their, their homeland, their promised land, which they had given up by their sin. And now they will be clothed with salvation. They will be draped in righteousness, not their own. This baby, and, and I mean, look at the life of Jesus, and, and, and look at how this, this coming of a Messiah is, is kind of bookended with the same thing. There's a child born naked, they're always born naked, 
wouldn't that be really troubling if they weren't? They're like tuxedo or something. Child is born naked, washed, rubbed with oil, and bound up, wrapped with strips of cloth. That's what they always did. And then this child, at the end of his life, after 33 and a half years, again naked and humiliated, dies on a cross, his body taken down, washed, rubbed with oil and incense, and wrapped and bound up in strips of cloth. He was clothed with our shame so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. That's the good news here. And in verse 4, we see how those who are freed respond. Those who have been the recipients of all these reversals, all these blessings in place of curses, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined places, the devastation of many generations. They will renew the ruined cities. Or the King James says, they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. They'd had hope. It was flickering. It was fading. But God didn't let it die. That, that smoldering wick, He kept it alive. And with this coming Messiah, now there is joy where there was hope. Hope bringing peace, bringing joy. These people who are tapped out, broken, despondent, and crushed in spirit, they're the ones who restore what was wasted and desolate before. They, they are now so full of joy that they want to share that hope and that peace and that joy with everyone around them. I think this may be the reason why new believers tend to be the most zealous about the work of restoring and renewing and wanting to proclaim the good news to all people. And I think of all the setbacks and burdens that 2020 has brought upon the church of Jesus Christ, even with many churches and congregations closing their doors forever, perhaps the worst is that there's been a pause in bringing new members into the body, in proclaiming the gospel to people who were outside of Christ. It's great that we've been able in many cases to hold tight to each other and to maintain what we had, but the reason that we exist is to proclaim good news to the poor in spirit, those trapped and bound in their sins, that there is release from that bondage, not just to sustain ourselves, but to spread the news. And in stopping one spread, which was a good thing, I'm afraid we may have accidentally stopped that blessed spread of the gospel in many cases as well, and we need to repent of that and figure out how to do both. But this passage gives us hope that as God restores us, and gives us beauty for ashes and the oil of joy for mourning, that we will find ourselves filled anew with gospel zeal. And my prayer is that even now, we will begin to feel that compulsion, that unction that we read about, that we read about in Jeremiah, when he says that the Word of God is shut up in him like a fire in his bones. Or like Paul says, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. I can't hold it in anymore. And I pray that even now, as we observe this third Sunday in Advent, the Sunday of joy, we would join with these returning exiles in proclaiming, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bride adorns herself. Again, again, and again, we see that Christ is uh, 
the, the bridegroom and we are the bride for him. And I think we are, we are tempted this year as we approach Christmas, as we think about Advent, as we reflect on all that is going on, to sort of partially rejoice, moderately rejoice. I bring you good news of meh joy. That'll be for whoever. No, what we read here is, I shall greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in Him. Not only do I think the church needs everywhere now to unpause our witness where we may have let it pause, but to unpause our joy as well. Because we will get weak without it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. And if the joy of the Lord is my strength, then the lack of joy or the tepid joy or the halfway joy is a lack of strength amongst God's people. Which means that we will struggle to hold on to one another, to hold on to our faith. We will struggle to reach out and proclaim good news to those who are captive and brokenhearted. And we should be all the more motivated by Jesus' reading of the text in Jerusalem, or Nazareth rather, when we consider that as he read it, he didn't read the whole thing. He stopped short. Yes, he says that he came to, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, liberty to captives, opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. By the way, that word favor and the word grace, more or less synonymous, great overlap there. But then he stopped. Middle of a verse rolled up the scroll, and sat down. He did not continue reading, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because that is not what had been fulfilled that day. The day of vengeance of our God, that will hold, that will keep until His second coming. That is not something that He had come to bring in the moment. And I think that ought to motivate us all the more. That we sit between verse 61 to A, and verse 61 to B, in that moment where the door is, is held wide to salvation and the word, let all who will come, come in. Go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. The day of wrath is coming. The day of vengeance is coming. But the day of favor is now. So seek the Lord while he may be found. To those exiled and separated in their sins, bound and chained, he brings good news of great joy. Great joy. A message that now is the day of grace. Now is the accepted time. Now is the jubilee of our God. I cannot imagine Alistair MacDonald not telling his friend the good news that he'd heard on the radio. That the high command of the Germans had surrendered and the war was effectively over. Even if they were still surrounded by the starkest reminders of war and captivity and all the rest, they were effectively free men and he had to tell him. And I can even less imagine how a Christian in the midst of Christmas and the reminder of what God has come to do in our midst could not tell a world in bondage and spiritual debt and darkness and mourning that Jesus has come to bind up their broken hearts, to set them free, to give them beauty for ashes. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this great news. Good news of great joy that, Lord, is not just for the mighty and rich and powerful, but for all people, particularly those who are poor in spirit. Lord, we are so thankful for the jubilee that we have in Christ. We are so thankful that our debts are forgiven that our, our bondage is broken, 
the chains that held us back from, from doing what we were made to do, worshiping You and loving You and being in communion with You have been shattered. Lord, we thank You for the words of the, the great Christmas carol, O Holy Night. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother. Lord, we think of the ramifications of this message as, as it has moved through mankind. Lord, we pray that that wouldn't pause this year, but that we would continue to see a wonderful message of hope, not in, in generic, vague terms, but hope rooted in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the death of Jesus outside Jerusalem, and His resurrection and ascension, and His sitting now at the right hand of God the Father to make intercession on our behalf. Lord, all these things are such great reason for hope, and that hope, we pray, would turn to joy. We ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.